0: I invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word this morning in the Old Testament prophet of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is about halfway through your Bible. If you open your Bible right to the middle and you land in like Psalms or Proverbs or Isaiah, turn forward a few pages till you get to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is... The longest book of the Bible. It has the most words anyway, uh, certainly of all the prophets. It has 52 chapters. Isaiah, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, has 66 chapters, but Jeremiah has a lot more to say. He makes a lot better use of the space in those chapters of 52, if you will. If you were to sit down and read Jeremiah in one or maybe two sittings, uh, and perhaps some of you did that this week, it would probably take you a while, maybe three or four, maybe five hours, depending on how, lo- how quickly you read and how closely you read to get through the book of Jeremiah. Uh, I spent time doing that this week in preparation for uh, this morning, and it was a blessing, let me tell you. Uh, Many who have studied uh, much of the Bible or know much about Jeremiah know that he is often nicknamed the weeping prophet uh, because much of his life was very, very difficult. And we'll see uh, some of that difficulty here in a moment. Uh, but I would encourage you, even even knowing the weight, the heaviness of the content of Jeremiah, uh, that, that you would be, and I was, blessed to read through this prophet, uh, and not just a little bit at a time, but read big chunks. And let me encourage you, just in general, in your Bible reading, don't be content, or don't content yourself to just reading a verse or two verses a day. Read the Bible in big chunks. Because it was delivered to us in big chunks. God speaks to his people through his word in paragraphs and whole books and letters. And so we do well as a part of our diet of Bible reading, of of intake of God's word to read big chunks. So I encourage you, read big chunks of Jeremiah this week. Uh, Many of you may have time off from work for the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I can't think of anything that would make you more grateful and thankful for the grace that there is to us in Jesus Christ than reading about the judgment that comes upon sinners in Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And that is kind of the theme of Jeremiah, judgment. It's kind of a, kind of a heavy theme, uh, and, and there's 52 chapters of it. Jeremiah is not a light and easy book. It's not quite as encouraging as like one of Paul's letters, like Philippians or like Hebrews, from which we read a little bit this morning. It's heavy, and it's difficult at points. It's hard to read sometimes, and yet it's still God's word to us, and it is important for us to know it and have it in us. We'll just get right into uh, the text and some of the background uh, that goes into it this morning. You uh, prayerfully received a, a small note sheet, a little bifold, that, uh, as you were coming in from our greeters to help you follow along in the sermon today. Uh, take that home with you, mark it up, scribble notes on it, um, uh, put all your sermon critique on there as well. If you'd like to, just stick it in your Bible and don't let me ever see it. you use that to follow along this morning. We know that the author of Jeremiah is the prophet himself, Jeremiah the son of Hilkiah. He had a companion in ministry, a man by the name of Baruch, who may have been a a prophet of sorts as well. Baruch, we know from Jeremiah 36, was instrumental in writing down large portions of what Jeremiah spoke. The words from the Lord that came to Jeremiah that he spoke, Baruch often wrote them down for Jeremiah. So it's possible that the two of them together were instrumental in organizing Jeremiah the way that it is. Jeremiah, the prophet, prophesied in Judah, the southern kingdom, after the kingdom was divided uh, following King Solomon's death. He prophesied in Judah from the reign of Josiah, who was the last good king of Judah around 627 BC, up until the day of Jerusalem's destruction and the destruction of the temple there and the taking away into exile the people of Judah by Babylon in the year 586 to 587 to 586 BC. So he prophesied for about 40 years or so. Now Jeremiah, this long prophetic book, is a collection of oracles from God, words from God, to his prophet for the people. And primarily, Jeremiah is here prophesying to the kings, Josiah, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, that, that reigned during that 40 years of his prophetic work. But Judah, or excuse me, Jeremiah also addresses false prophets and wicked religious leaders among the people of Judah, and the people specifically for their idolatry. Additionally, Jeremiah calls out against the nations of the world, the nations that surround Israel and Judah, uh, uh, speaking words of God's judgment on them for their sin as well, including final judgment for Babylon, who would be punished for their failure to worship the Lord, even though the Lord used them as his servant, as his means of punishing Judah for their sins. Jeremiah is a heavy book full of a lot of judgment. It's a difficult book to read, not only because of its heavy and dark tone, but also because Jeremiah is not arranged in chronological order. If you're reading Jeremiah, looking for a nice, tight narrative that just moves from scene A to scene B to scene C in nice, tidy order, you won't find it. (laughs) He jumps around from king to king. He'll he'll talk about a uh, prophecy that came to Jehoiakim, and then he'll talk about a a prophecy that he gave to Josiah, who ruled before Jehoiakim, and it seems all out of chronological order but Jeremiah and Baruch together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God are organizing these oracles these prophecies around themes to help those who would read it later to help exiles living in Babylon or in Egypt away from their homeland to have an understanding of who God is and what he's doing among his people. And so I think it's best to read Jeremiah with a thematic eye, an eye for the themes that pervade Jeremiah, an eye for an ear for the melodic tone that comes up periodically throughout the book. It helps to have a general understanding, too, of the historic events of Jeremiah's day to get a sense of how the Lord's word through his prophet would have been received by Jeremiah's hearers. I encourage you, if you have a study Bible, read the preface to Jeremiah in your study Bible. Read some of the historic background. Try to get a sense of what's going on in the world and in Judah at the time so you can better understand uh, or better see when Jeremiah is shifting scenes or shifting timelines so you don't feel all out of sorts, uh, and you can get a sense for why he's organizing these words from the Lord the way that he is. There are a number of themes that pervade this very long book, and we could spend all morning just talking about all the different themes that are there. But in my study of Jeremiah 4, Rise to the Top, these themes that that seem to be most strongly played throughout Jeremiah are things like the justice of God, that God is just, that He is uh, holy and righteous, and He always does what is right. The theme of God's covenant relationship with His people, that they have broken it and that He's going to restore it. The theme of the possibility of repentance. All throughout Jeremiah, the Lord speaks through his prophet to his people, saying to his people, return to me, repent, come back to me. And a great theme in Jeremiah, tucked specifically in chapters 30 through 33, which we'll look at in a little while, is God's promised salvation. That God is going to renew his covenant and save his people, that he's doing something in, uh, for their good and for his glory as he sends them into exile. Now, each week as we work through this woven series where we look at whole books of the Bible from about 30,000 feet or so, we want to try to locate each book of the Bible in the scope of God's redemption history. What God has been doing from creation until Christ comes again to uh, bring a renewed heavens, a new earth, uh, to restore people to himself, to redeem people from sin. Jeremiah falls kind of right smack in the middle between that, that event of the fall where Adam and Eve disobeyed God, ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, broke fellowship with Him. Becoming sinners, we, uh, all of their progeny are born sinful, and so we are born into sin. We are born into a disposition to rebel against God. The effects of the fall have been working themselves out in people all around the world from the moment of Adam and Eve's sin until, well, and all the way up and through the history of the people of Israel and Judah, even in Jeremiah's day and redemption rescue for that sin has not come yet in the person of Jesus Christ but it's coming and there are hints to there are there are uh, anticipatory notes of a day of deliverance throughout Jeremiah. So I like to locate Jeremiah in redemption history right in that period between fall and redemption because it's so much of the space between where God's people are dealing with the effects of their sin, the fellowship that is broken with God because of sin and idolatry and injustice, and looking for a day of rescue, a day of redemption. So if you're taking notes this morning, you may want to circle that little arrow between fall and redemption in your, um, uh, in your note sheet for today. You might want to circle maybe parts of fall and redemption in that as well to show that this not every book fits in a perfect, uh, asp, a perfect, perfect part of that redemption history aspect of it. Sometimes it flows over different aspects of it, but whatever helps you to locate it there, do that. Now, Jeremiah, like Isaiah, falls in the category of prophetic literature. And as we said when we studied Isaiah, that prophecy in the Bible is a lot less about foretelling the future and a lot more about telling forth what God is saying to his people. And so Jeremiah falls right into that. There's some foretelling, a a day of rescue, a day of redemption, a day of covenant renewal. But much of Jeremiah, most of Jeremiah, is God speaking through his prophet to convict the people of Judah about their sins so that they'll repent. When you're reading prophetic books, it's helpful to remember that Jeremiah prophesied in a particular day to a particular people in a particular historical context. And so when you're studying prophetic books of the Bible, don't try to do the the hard job of of, uh, an, an incomplete job of reading the prophetic book and then immediately applying it to your life today. We need to do things like ask questions about the historical context of Jeremiah and Judah. What was going on in that day and why did these words matter to them? Because these words mattered to them then first before we ever were, right? Then we need to think about how the first readers, how the first hearers of Jeremiah uh, and these words of the Lord through him, how they would have received his word and how they would have responded to his word. We need to think about what the oracles through Jeremiah reveal about the character of God and his relationship to his people. And then once we've done that work, then we can ask the question, how does this revelation of God's character to them then apply to and impact our lives today? It may help to have a brief timeline or a review of the timeline of historic events in Judah before we dive right into this prophet. So just very quickly, let me summarize uh, some important critical events in the life of Israel and Judah to get us up to speed and get us into the, the headspace, if you will, the historical space of Jeremiah. Around the year 970 BC or so, David, the first good king of a United Kingdom Israel, died. And after he died, Solomon, his son, took the throne of Israel. Solomon built the temple and saw a sort of golden age, a golden day of, of, uh, of Israel, Israelite prosperity there in Jerusalem. But about 40 years later, in 931 BC, give or take, Solomon, the son of David, died. And when he died, the kingdom split in two. One of Solomon's sons and another significant uh, uh, a person of the court in Israel had a bit of a falling out, and the kingdom split. The northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, which had about 10 and a half tribes of the people of Israel, uh, uh, formed a kingdom in the north. And then in the south, Judah and the half tribe of Manasseh formed a kingdom of their own called Judah. So we have after Solomon's death, the kingdom splits in two. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel only had bad kings who did idolatrous stuff all the time, led the people astray. It's a bad situation. Judah in the south, only had two good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. And neither of them, to be quite honest, were very good either. But they were better than most of the others. In the year 722 BC, Israel, the kingdom in the north, was defeated by Assyria. We uh, got a little bit of a peek into that when we were looking at the book of Isaiah a couple of weeks ago. Then in the year 605 BC, Babylon started to encroach upon Judah. And in 605 BC, they took away the first wave of exiles, uh, uh, first wave of, of Judahites into exile. Then in 597 BC, Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar, took a second round of exiles and deported them to Babylon. And then in 586, 587, 586 BC, Jerusalem itself was finally sacked by the Babylonian kingdom uh, through the work of the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And, uh, and all of those people, uh, the last round of exiles, were taken away to Babylon. Some were sent to Egypt. They kind of went a lot of different places, but they weren't home anymore. So it is into that world of idolatry by the God's people, spiritual adultery, as, as the Lord will, will kind of liken it to. It is into this age of God's judgment, this day of God's judgment upon his disobedient people that we step as we open Jeremiah. Now, as you read Jeremiah, you're going to find a number of passages, even lengthy ones throughout the book, that deal with Jeremiah the prophet specifically, narratives of his own life and things that happened to him. We won't hit on all of those this morning, but what you'll notice as you read these aspects of his own personal life, that in all but just a couple of these scenes, Jeremiah the prophet is being actively opposed at every turn by false prophets in Judah, by ungodly kings, by the people of Israel themselves, even collectively, because of his message of God's impending judgment coming upon them. The people are in disbelief. They, they cannot fathom that God would actually judge them the way that Jeremiah is saying that God will. And so, for his trouble, Jeremiah is thrown into stocks. He's imprisoned. He's dropped into a cistern, which is like an underground water storage chamber. He was eventually carried off into Egypt as an exile, never to return to Judah. So The moniker, the weeping prophet, becomes uh, really obvious now as to why it fits. His life, his calling, uh, Jeremiah, are in many ways tragic. I can't imagine what it would be to be called by God like Jeremiah was, to do what he did, to live the way, the life that he lived, and then to be carried off into exile, to preach a message to a people who would not listen. But yet it is God's calling on Jeremiah's life, and it's a significant calling that rests on this prophet. He will be God's spokesman to a people who are the object of God's judgment. In Jeremiah chapter 1, if you have your Bibles open, you can kind of uh, follow along. We're going to be in a number of different places back and forth, so this may bring back memories of Bible drill for you. I'm not sure, but Jeremiah 1, 4 to 8, the calling of Jeremiah. We read, Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord says to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. As Jeremiah's prophecy begins in the first several chapters, we have, uh, just in the first few chapters, the the laying out of God's case against His people. We have in the first few chapters of Jeremiah the judge, the accused, and the charges. This whole thing is setting up like a court scene. The one who stands as the judge in Jeremiah is not the prophet, obviously, but it's the Lord, it's God in the heavens. The accused are the people of Judah. Judah. The southern kingdom, of the divided kingdom, also more broadly referred to also as Israel because they're Israelites by nature or by ethnicity. And the charges that God brings against them are charges that they have broken their covenant with the Lord. It's helpful for us to remember who the Lord is, this judge who brings these charges so that we can understand his authority to bring these charges against his people. We learn first and foremost that God is, the Lord is the creator of the universe Jeremiah 10, 10 through 13 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Verse 12 says, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is the creator of the universe. But more than that, he's the one who brought the people of Israel, these Judahites, their ancestors, out of Egypt as slaves there and to the promised land. And there he's the same God who made a covenant with them to be their God if they would obey him. And it was that covenant, if you obey me, I will be your God. You will be my people. It was that covenant that the people have broken. And it's that covenant for which God is now bringing his charges against them. Jeremiah 7 verses 22 through 26 is next to, uh, also in conjunction with Jeremiah chapter 11, a key uh, aspect or a key uh, point in God making his case against these covenant breakers. Jeremiah 7:22, the Lord says, In the day that I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them: Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, so that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels, and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and they went backward and not forward. From that day, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, to this day I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So we see that rather than following the Lord, rather than worshiping him, rather than obeying his command, the people of Judah, the Lord says in Jeremiah 2.13, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that, cisterns that can hold no water. Now, this is a poetic way of referring to the broken covenant, but what it says is this that Judah have sought to be self-reliant. God, the fountain of living water, is not good enough for them. They would rather see what they can produce in their own power. And rather than depending upon the fresh and ever-flowing power and provision of God, they've tried to store up for themselves power and influence and significance through at least three different things. They've tried to store up power for themselves through political alliances. Jeremiah 2.18, the Lord says, What do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Speaking about a political alliance with Egypt, what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Don't entangle yourselves politically with these other nations. It seems stronger than you. It's not going to help you. The people of Judah have tried to store up power for themselves through idolatrous worship. Jeremiah 3.1, the Lord says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore. You've played the prostitute with many lovers, God says. And would you return to me, declares the Lord. The people have tried to store up power and influence for themselves, significance in the world, by attempting to manipulate God through the relationship that they had with him. Jeremiah 7, 4, the Lord says, Do not trust in these deceptive words, these false prophets who say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. There were apparently some false teachers, false prophets in in Judah and in Jerusalem who were saying, look, we have God's temple among us. He's on our side. How could he ever uh, judge us? How could he ever discipline us the way that Jeremiah is saying? We have the temple. Thinking that the presence of God's worship among them was an indicator that God was on their side without ever thinking in the way that they live and act every day of the week, whether or not they're actually on God's side. God's temple is not a talisman. It's not a good luck charm. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot to be toted about uh, and used in protection, some sort of magical spell against foreign invaders. The Lord says, listen, temple or not, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not sure what thoughts come into your mind as you read and hear God's indictment on the people of Judah in Jeremiah. But as I read through all of these indictments of their sins, friends, I see a lot of myself here. Countless times I've relied on my own intellect and my own abilities to get things done. Too often I've given praise and glory to things that are not God. Almost at every turn in Jeremiah, I can say concerning uh, Judah, me too, that's me. There I go again. It's like their life, their sins, are my life, my sins. Whether or not you reflect on your own life in this way, the truth is that all of us have sinned in ways like this. The people of Judah are not far from us, or I should say we are not far from them. Now, maybe we haven't made carved images of other gods and worshiped them, but sin isn't always as blatantly wicked and obvious as that. Sometimes, maybe most times, our sin are as subtle as the first stinging indictment of Jeremiah 2.13, that we've forsaken the fountain of living water. We've tried to find life in every other place than in the author of life. Our hearts are sick with sin, Jeremiah seventeen nine says. And even we cannot understand the reasons for the evil that we do. What we learn in Jeremiah as the judge brings the charges against the accused is that sin is not just a Judah problem. Sin is a human problem. Sin is not just a problem for them then. Sin is a problem for us now. And sin is not just a a problem for the Israelites who are in covenant community with God. Sin is a problem for every human being that has ever lived and come from Adam and Eve's union. Sin is a global problem. And sin is an individual problem. It's a me problem and a you problem. Don't miss that as you read through these charges that we are not altogether in any way better off than Judah or Israel were. So the judge brings his charges against the accused, and then as Jeremiah goes on in a number of places, we see the sentence that is going to be doled out, the sentence for their sin. Over 800 years before Jeremiah ever prophesied and lived, the Lord warned his people after he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he warned his people with great specificity about what would happen if they forsook, if they broke his covenant with them. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, in verse 15, we read, the Lord says, if you will not obey, or Moses says on behalf of the Lord, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And over the next many verses, there's a, a number of curses that will come upon the people of Israel if they forsake the covenant. Then Deuteronomy 28:36 says, as one of those curses, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. The sentence for covenant breaking is exile being sent off into a foreign nation. And in Jeremiah chapter 11, God takes his prophet to King Jehoiakim to say, or excuse me, Jeremiah 25, he takes his prophet to King Jehoiakim to say, in Jeremiah 25 verse 3, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. In verse 8, he continues, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah to King Jehoiakim, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these years, uh, these years shall serve the king of Babylon, 70 years. So God promised it in Deuteronomy 28. If you break my covenant, sending you into exile. 800 years later, the people broke their covenant. What is God doing? Sending them into exile. He says, Jeremiah says effectively the same thing to King Zedekiah in uh, Jeremiah 27, 1 to 7. And it all comes to pass. This whole exile promise comes to pass in a horrifying way as Jehoiakim's son is taken into exile. And then in Jeremiah, 20, uh, in Jeremiah 24, and then even worse when finally King Zedekiah is dethroned by Nebuchadnezzar, is humiliated by Nebuchadnezzar, and tortured by Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to how Zedekiah's life ends, the last king of Judah. Jeremiah 39, 1 to 9, you can find a parallel passage in Jeremiah 52, 1 to 11. We read, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Verse 6 says, The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. Nebuchadnezzar takes Zedekiah's sons, stands them up in front of Zedekiah, and kills them while Zedekiah watches. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. And then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah, so that the last thing he would ever see are his two sons slaughtered before him. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried, the ex- carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and those who remained. The effect of disregarding the steadfast love of the Lord, of breaking his covenant, and of worshiping gods that are not gods is this deportation and exile. God promised it at the beginning of his, revela- uh, beginning of his relationship with the Hebrews. And as sure as he promised these curses for their disobedience, so now he's brought all these curses to pass. Friends, the sentence for sin is dire. It's even deadly. But God has always warned us that it would be. There's no surprises to us here in Jeremiah. From God's warning in the garden to Adam and Eve that if they ate from the tree from which God had forbidden, he would surely die, to the covenant curses of Deuteronomy, to the affirmation of Paul the Apostle in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, we have been consistently warned by God what sin deserves. There's no excuse for any of us to say, I didn't know, God. He's told us from beginning all the way through, rebellion against me, sin against me deserves death. Now some may question why the punishment for sin is so severe. But when we turn from the source of all life and light in the one true God who made the universe, where else is there to go but death and darkness? The sentence passed on Judah is the sentence that's passed on all who sin. Exile, death, broken fellowship with our creator, the end of our life, broken, broken fellowship forever from God. And this consequence does not come from a God who hates us, no but from a God who really cares about His own holiness, from a God who really cares about true goodness, a God who warns in love about the very real dangers of walking away from Him, and a God who does not compromise His truthfulness or His holiness by merely winking at sin when it's committed. Hear this warning today, friend. Our sin has real consequences. Do not think that you can hide it from a holy God, Do not be deceived into thinking that your sins are relatively less serious than the sins of others. All sin is deadly. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin has for its wages death, but death for sins is not necessarily the end of the story. Blessedly, thankfully, it's not the end of the story for Judah and it's not the end of the story for us because there is, as we see in Jeremiah, particularly in those middle chapters of 30 through 33, a wonderful promise of hope. For those who are guilty. We have the judge. We have the accused. We have the charges. They're legit. We have the sentence. It's coming. But even in the middle of all that, there's hope. Hope for those who are guilty for sin before God. The first glimmer of hope comes to us in this, that God says a number of times in Jeremiah, he is not going to bring a full end to his people. He's not going to wipe them off the earth completely and forever. The first glint of hope comes for God's people in the middle of their sentence for sin. And that hope is that though God is punishing them, He is not going to make a full end of them. Jeremiah 4, 27 says, For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. And that promise is repeated twice in chapter 5, again in chapter 30 and in Jeremiah 46. Though the people deserve total destruction, that's what their sin deserves, God is going to preserve a small number of them, a remnant for His glory. His covenant promises to Israel are not dead simply because Israel has disobeyed. The Lord promises that after 70 years of exile in Jeremiah 23:3 that he will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they will fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. There is wonderful hope here for a future of renewed relationship with God. Exile isn't the end for Judah. There's even the promise that God will use exile for the people's good as he uses it to lead them to repentance and forgiveness. And this is the second aspect of hope for the guilty. There is hope for forgiveness when the people repent. The call to repent and to be forgiven is extended early on in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4, 1 and 2, the Lord says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. That word return is the same word that's regularly uh, translated repent. If you repent, O Israel, repent to me. Repent from sin, turn from your sin, and come back to me. If you remove your detestable things, speaking about the idols and, and uh, unjust practices among them, if you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in him and in him shall, they shall glory. This is a wonderful promise here. God says, not only is there hope for a renewed relationship with me if you'll turn from your sin, but you turning from your sin and being restored by me will be a picture of hope even for the nations who don't believe. And even they will glory in me because they see the grace and the mercy that I give to those who turn from sin. And so in Jeremiah 4, even before exile has come, the Lord calls Judah to repent, to return, to leave their idols, to leave their injustice, to come back to him and to be the blessing to the nations that he intended them to be. But the greater hope for forgiveness in, in response to repentance is present even in the middle of exile. So hope comes before exile, but, but hope for forgiveness in response to repentance comes in the middle of exile. God says to a people who have been divided by deportation to foreign lands in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, this is what God says to exiled people. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now these verses, specifically Jeremiah 29 11, are often wrongly applied as direct promises to us today that God has wonderful plans for your life. But consider, before making that promise to yourself, that God said these words, I know the plans I have for you, to a people who were in exile because of their sin. And to a people who are in exile, brought on by God for sin that they committed against God, God says, I'm not done with you. I have plans here. I know what I'm doing. This may be hard, Judah. I get it. You're in Egypt now. You're in Babylon now. You're scattered all over the nations of the earth now. You're not in the home place where you're supposed to be. But I got this. And it's a good thing that I've spread you out this way, says the Lord. This punishment is meant to lead you to repentance and repentance to forgiveness and forgiveness to life as I have designed for you again. So Christian, I'm not saying don't ever claim Jeremiah 29, 11 for your life. What I am saying is, is claim it, apply it appropriately. If you are in the middle of discipline for sin that you know you are guilty of, say Jeremiah 29:11 11 to yourself. The Lord is doing good in me and bringing glory to himself as I am, as I am going through hardship because of sin that I've committed. That even this difficulty for my sin against God and against others, even this God intends to use for his glory. And there is hope that I, will see, that I will find him when I seek after him with my whole heart. So I'm going to make this hard time of consequences for sin, a time of discipline where I'm going to do some learning and do some repenting and do some returning to the God of all life. Now, this hope for forgiveness for sins of a broken covenant leads naturally then to the brightest star of hope for the guilty in Jeremiah, the hope of a new covenant. Old covenant's broken. What are you going to do? Put another old one in place? No, says the Lord, I'm bringing a new one. Jeremiah 30 through 33 are to us a cool spring in the hot desert of God's judgment and wrath that is the rest of Jeremiah if you get a little bit tired or you're a little bit worn out reading Jeremiah, go camp out in 30 to 33 for a little while, okay? Get refreshed and then get back to where you were. <laughs> these four chapters give promise of great hope and restoration and mercy and grace and forgiveness to the rebels who are Judah uh, that God has sent among the people of the world. So I encourage you, Christian, please read these chapters this week if you haven't already. Read read Jeremiah 30 through 33, and even if you've read all of Jeremiah in preparation for this sermon this morning, go back and read 30 to 33 again. You'll be blessed. But this morning, hear the promise of a renewed covenant in just one part of this chunk in the middle, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, the Lord says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Man, there's a ton that we could unpack in just these few verses, not just in the context of Jeremiah, but in the context of the rest of Scripture. But let me point to just a few absolutely critical reversals that come in the context of this promise of a new covenant where previously Israel was indicted for breaking their covenant with God in uh, chapter 7 and 11 of Jeremiah. Then in chapters 24, 30, 31, and 32, the Lord promises a new covenant. His people will be His again. Where the Lord promised to remember the sins and, and iniquity of Israel against them. In chapter 14, verse 10 and 31, verse 34, He promises to never again remember their sin. Where the Lord said that he would not have mercy on Judah in chapter 16, verse 5 for breaking the old covenant. He promises in 314 uh, and 3120 and 3326 in the context of the new covenant, now to have mercy upon them. And where the people stubbornly followed their own lying hearts, which, by the way, if you ever wanted a manifesto, a treatise against the Disney encouragement to follow your heart, to be the princess inside, read Jeremiah, it's all a lie. The people stubbornly followed their own lying hearts in chapter 7 and 9 and 11 and 13 and 17 and 18 and 23 and 26. Go read it. Where the people stubbornly followed their own lying hearts thinking, I know what way is best. The Lord promises in the context of the new covenant to put his law in their hearts. So that they might worship him and be his people, not in listening to the lying sin of their own hearts, but listening to the loving, perfect law of God, both in 31, 33 and 32:39. And where there were in Judah only faithless fathers and lying prophets and wicked kings, the Lord promises in the new covenant a coming day where he says in 33:14, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel, the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, a new king. And he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. That branch of David, that righteous king who springs up in the royal line of the king, would live in righteousness and deal in justice, God promises. Now, I dare say, after Zedekiah died, there was never a king like this that God describes that sat on a throne in Jerusalem. There's never a king like this that sat on a throne in Jerusalem. But there was a son of David like this, who wore a crown of thorns and died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And that righteous king, Jesus the Messiah, the branch of David is the Lord. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he is our righteousness. God made him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. And it was his blood that sealed and inaugurated the age of that new covenant that God promised through Jeremiah. We read this morning in our call to worship, Hebrews nine fifteen. The affirmation that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant because he died once for all for sins. He's the one who brings Jeremiah 30 to 33 to full life to all who trust in him. Jesus himself spoke about his role of being the mediator of a new covenant in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. The night Jesus was betrayed, before he was arrested and carried off and eventually crucified, we read this Matthew says now as they were eating Jesus with his disciples and the rented up a room for the Passover that Jesus took bread and after blessing it he broke it and he gave it to the disciples said take eat this is my body and then he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and he said drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hear me today. The same holy God who judged the sins of Judah stands in righteousness to judge each person even still today. He hasn't quit being righteous. He hasn't quit being holy, Christian or otherwise. His, his warning against the dangers of sin are just as binding and they're just as certain. The wages of sin is still death, but there's still hope for the guilty. In Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, there is hope for life with God. There's an invitation to repent of sin and to receive forgiveness. In Christ's own death at Calvary and by His resurrection is hope for grace, hope to be adopted as a child of God if only you trust Him and submit to Him as Lord of your life. All of the promises of the new covenant are available to you in Jesus. Pastor John Piper said, and if God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving. Therefore, his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. God promises judgment against sin in Jeremiah. But in his love, he holds out hope for redemption, for forgiveness, for new covenant relationship with him. In the branch of David, his son Jesus who would come to live the sinless life we never could, to die the death we all deserve, to be raised from the dead in power and victory so that all who trust in him might become members of this new covenant community.